Rico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And David, what's going on over in Brown County? Well, Juliana, the Brown County Water Utilities and the Nashville Town Council reconvened in court on January 24th. The private water company filed a federal lawsuit against the Nashville Town Council in June. Brown County Water Utilities alleges the town encroached on their service area when it annexed Firecracker Hill last year. The parties returned to court yesterday after taking a brief hiatus in the case over the holidays. This lawsuit came after the town of Nashville signed an agreement with Big Woods Brewing Company, which owns Quaff On, to provide water to the company's newly proposed brewery site called Hard Truth Hills. Big Woods currently uses 30% of the water in Nashville. That's making the brewing company the city's largest single customer. We are so fortunate to have them. Hard Truth Hills will consume a projected 1 million gallons a month, according to court documents. The Brown County Democrat reports that this amount represents a five-fold increase in what Big Woods Brewery currently consumes. Brown County Water Utilities, a private utility, argues that Hard Truth Hills is within its service boundaries area, citing a 1961 federal act stating that service can't be limited within a company's legal service boundaries. They allege that the city of Nashville is attempting to curtail their service by cutting into their existing service area. Nashville Utilities is the largest single customer of Brown County Water Utilities, according to court documents. Brown County Water Utilities states that if they were ever to lose the Nashville Utilities and, by extension, Big Woods Brewery as clients, it could cause water utility prices throughout Brown County to increase dramatically. Well, in July of last year, approximately one month after the lawsuit was filed, Brown County Water Utilities constructed a $95,000 pipe system to supply Hard Truth Hills. However, the Nashville Water Utilities had already hooked the location into the town's water supplies a few weeks prior. It could cost Big Woods and Hard Truth Hills developers an additional $100,000 to hook up the water lines to the Brown County Water Utilities pipe system, a price which, according to the court documents, Hard Truth Hills does not want to pay. Nashville Town Attorney Jim Roberts declined to comment on this story, as did representatives from Big Woods Brewing and the Brown County Water Utilities. David, have you ever hit a deer? No, I haven't. (laughs) Well, (laughs) the city of Bloomington's December deer cull succeeded in culling 62 deer from the Lake Griffey Nature Preserve. Natural Resources Manager Steve Cotter updated the Board of Park Commissioners on the call in their meeting on January 23rd. 
The results of the call, which took place over 10 nights between December 15th and 28th, uh, there was, was no sharpshooting on the 24th, 25th, or 26th, um, removal of 62 deer. Of those deer, 43 were females and 19 were males. The city's last attempt at a deer call in 2014 was not so successful. Cotter says a plentiful acorn crop that year prevented deer from taking the bait laid out for them. Cotter says last month's successful deer call yielded food for local food banks. The deer were processed by KW Deer Processing here in town with financial assistance from farmers and hunters feeding the hungry. 1,682 pounds of venison was donated to the Hoosier Hills Food Bank, and I've heard that about two-thirds of that has already been distributed. The cull cost $43,500. That's $700 a head. The cost includes a $35,000 contract with White Buffalo Incorporated for sharpshooters, as well as the cost of processing the deer meat and other associated expenses. Cotter and researchers from Indiana University's biology department have consistently argued that deer feeding on the Nature Preserve's forest understory are tearing it down faster than it can regenerate. In a presentation to the Park Board last July, Cotter said more than 575 different types of plants at Griffey Lake are at risk from what he calls deer browsing. The goal of the deer call in 2017 was to remove enough deer from the Griffey Lake Nature Preserve to reduce the browse pressure on understory plant species and seedling trees to the point these species are able to recover and to grow once again at Griffey Lake. The reestablishment and median heights of different indicator plant species, including violets, trilliums, baneberry, jack-in-the-pulpit, and sweet sicily, as well as the abundance and height of native hardwood tree seedlings, have been studied and will continue to be studied to determine the success of deer reduction efforts. The effect of deer browsing was detailed nearly a decade ago in the Griffey Lake Master Plan Update. In 2010, the city and county together created a deer task force, in part to find ways to mitigate the deer's ecological impact. After two years of research, the task force released a quote, a report in 2012 recommending sharpshooting for, quote, immediate, substantial, and humane reduction of the deer population, unquote. To restore the ecological integrity of Griffey, excuse me, of Griffey, a substantial number of deer need to be culled soon to avoid irreversible ecological damage. Sharpshooting is the most efficient way to cull the greatest number of deer in the most humane way possible. All of the animal species at Griffey rely on plants for their survival. Deer have reduced the number, size, and reproductive success of most species of plants in the preserve, which has had a negative effect on the animals, birds, reptiles, amphibians, insects, and other life forms that live there. Deer browse pressure must be kept low, especially during the recovery period, if populations of these species are to thrive within the Griffey Lake Nature Preserve. Well, ultimately, Juliana, we know that the city and county will have to develop a long-term deer management plan. Cotter says a long-term plan could include allowing local hunters on public properties through the state's new Community Hunting Access Program. The Indiana Department of Natural Resources developed the program as a tool for communities to address large deer populations. After Cotter's presentation, Parks and Board President Kathleen Mills sought to clarify a misunderstanding about the call among the public. Just a comment, I appreciate all the details and I also wanted to 
clarify a kind of misrepresentation. There was a guest column in the Herald Times that said the deer call was a failure because the way it was phrased was the goal was 100 deer, 62 were killed, therefore it was a failure. But um, And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but as I remember the contracts, the language we signed off on was up to 100 deer. That's that, correct. Okay. That was the, the language in the permit as well, that it was 100 was the maximum number. Right, okay. So it's not the 100 was the be-all and end-all and it failed because it was 62. It was, yeah, that was this the cap of what it could be. Right? Thank you for that clarification. Yeah. Cotter says the city won't know if the December cull was a success until a team can measure the plants. Cotter discussed that process with board member Darcy Fawcett. He says they'll start by measuring wildflowers in April. And then the tree measurements will occur a little bit later than that. So this spring and summer we'll be measuring the plants out there again, as we have been for the last four years. I guess it's sooner than what I would thought that you'd be able to see an impact or whether or not there was an impact that quick. That's right. We're not sure what we're going to find. Uh, A lot depends on the weather conditions, of course, and how sunny it is early in the season. Uh, But we've been measuring for a while, and we'll continue that, and hopefully we'll see some trends that show that the plant community is recovering. The next park board meeting is scheduled for Tuesday, February the 27th. On January 25th, Indiana Attorney General Curtis Hill announced a multi-million dollar agreement to address alleged violations of environmental regulations at an East Chicago energy plant that produces coke, a solid fuel made by heating coal. The alleged violators are Suncoke Energy and two subsidiaries. Under the terms of the agreement, the companies will pay $5 million in civil penalties to be divided evenly between the state of Indiana and federal government. Further, the agreement includes a lead abatement project at Indiana schools, daycare centers, and other buildings where owners can't afford lead abatement work. Priority will be uh, facilities with young children and pregnant women. The plant illegally emitted waste gases, lead, sulfur dioxide, and particulate matter. Such emissions result from leaking coke ovens and excessive bypass venting of hot coking gases directly into the atmosphere. The leaked pollutants have been associated with acid rain and respiratory illnesses, including decreased lung function, aggravated asthma, premature death in people with heart or lung disease. Gosh, David, I think we just heard recently, very recently, that um, coal was a beautiful, clean coal. Remember that statement? (laughs) The head of China's State Forestry Administration announced plans for a major reforestation project. The country aims to grow about 15 million acres of new forest this year, an area roughly the size of West Virginia. Man, that's really good news. Although China's forest cover is only 20%, the country has some of the largest expanses of forested land in the world, making it a top target for forest preservation efforts. The United Nations listed China among the top 15 countries with the most old-growth forest or naturally regrown woods. 12% of China's land area, or more than 200 million acres, is virgin forest. Wow. However, the U.N. also estimates that China's virgin forests are facing pressure from high population densities, making preservation efforts especially important. 
China is the world's largest emitter of carbon dioxide and remains dependent on coal. But the country is now attempting to shed its image as a major polluter and assume the role of global environmental leader through projects including reforestation. Thank you, China. The administration announced several forestry goals, which include increasing the country's forest coverage rate to 23% by the end of this decade. Between 2020 to 2035, China plans to further boost its percentage of forest coverage to 26%. Woohoo! Yeah, that sounds really good. <laughs> Uh, Juliana. Um, back to the United States here. On January 29th, Jay Inslee, government of Washington state, rejected a permit to, con to construct what would have been the country's largest terminal for trains carrying oil. The decision was a major victory for a coalition of organizations, including the Columbia Riverkeeper and Oregon Physicians for Social Responsibility. They have been fiercely opposed to the project. The terminal would have brought 360,000 barrels of crude oil each day from the Bakken Shale Formation to the Port of Vancouver, Washington. Trains transporting oil are highly explosive, and so have been, have, they have earned the name bomb trains. Thirty accidents have taken place with such trains in the last five years. In 2016, the derailment of an oil train in Oregon, which shares a border with Washington, caused a fire that destroyed over a dozen railroad cars. The public made some 250,000 comments on the project. For WFHB, I'm David Lyman. David, that last uh, article that you just uh, talked about... That's more good news. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Juliana Daly, and we love to hear from our listeners. Contact us about stories we've aired, or if you have ideas for future stories, please send emails to earth at wfhb.org. Now it's time for Get Out and Hike, our segment showcasing the wonderful wild areas of southern Indiana and beyond. I'm Jan Walker. Hi, I'm Kate Welch, and today... We have been out on the Pate Hollow Trail. The Pate Hollow Trail is uh, part of the Hoosier National Forest. And it's just one of the hikes that I like because it's a mix of hardwoods, mostly hardwoods, but there's a few uh, spruce trees out there. And and uh, it's just a nice hike, little up and down, some, some rocks here and there. If you do the whole loop, it's over seven miles. I know my son-in-law and grandchildren like to come out and hike it, and you can actually, uh, because it's in the National Forest, you can you can do primitive camping out there. And they've come out with um, their tent hammocks and slept overnight, and that's kind of an adventure for Dad to take the kids out overnight in the tent hammock. You're going to tell me about that wonderful little elf house. It's a great little, uh, very short hike to the elf house. It really is this tiny little 8-inch, 10-inch door that has been installed in a, a tree. And if you open the door, there is a little table in there. Mm -hmm. And today, when we opened the door, it seemed that Santa Claus had even been there and left some candy. There were some little chocolates there, which would be kind of fun for people to bring out and put a little offering in there to the little elves that live in the forest. Yes, and the children <laughs> love it as well. And, 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 you know, if you want to take your youngsters for a short hike and they're hike hike resistant, which I can't imagine being hike resistant <laughs> as a little kid, but if they are... 
promise the elf house and they'll they'll run to it. Now, you also talked to me about how this was a great trail for um, a single woman to come out. Yes, I felt very comfortable out here. I first found this trail by mistake. I was like, why, why are these cars all going out there behind the DNR building? And so I went to investigate and lo and behold, there was a there was the trailhead. And I walked out a little bit that day, but I was kind of shy. It's like, okay, I'm out here by myself. Is this okay? Well, over time, I've discovered that a lot of runners use this trail. And there's a number of cars here Mm -hmm. at the trailhead. So we know there are people out there. And if anything happened where I needed help, I feel confident someone would come along because I know that the runners like this trail because it's a seven-mile loop and it's kind of a nice run through the forest. Well, thank you, Kate. This week, correspondent Norm Holy speaks with Indiana Forest Alliance Conservation Director Ray Schnapp about the costs and value associated with Indiana State Forests. This is Norm Holy for WFHB, and today I'm interviewing Dr. Ray Schnapp. She's with the Indiana Forest Alliance, and she recently spoke in Bloomington here about the concealed costs and hidden values in state forests, a very intriguing topic. Tell us what your talk was about. Well, my talk was about some research that we've been working on for a report. First of all, we... I am not an economist, but we were working with several economists. We worked with Morton Marcus, who is kind of a well-known columnist and a retired professor of economics at the Kelly School of Business at IUPUI. And we also worked with the Keylog Institute, which specializes on natural resource economics. We put together this report to look at some questions that we have about the management of our state forest system. Tell us what your results were. So first of all, we were looking at some of the costs associated with logging. We have seen reports, well, we know that they've been increasing the level of harvest from our state forests, and that has about quadrupled since 2005. We know that the Division of Forestry has become rather reliant on that revenue stream for their budget, but we also know that there are costs associated with administering timber sales program. We tried to look into those costs. We found it rather difficult to study those costs because of the way that they are tracked in our state budget system. There are procedures manuals about how they're supposed to be tracked. We found that in many cases costs associated with road building, for instance, and also with timber management, things like removing invasive species and culling the undesirable species are not included in the costs. Even the costs of producing the timber harvest report are not included in the cost tracking system. Yeah, the Legislative Services Agency estimated that the costs associated with timber sales are about 8%, so that would be sort of like their overhead, we find that it's much higher. And it does vary by site, of course, because some sites are much more difficult to access than others. And road building costs are a big part of the costs because we have to provide access to the areas in order to sell the timber. And roads are pretty expensive. That was one part of our 
study. Another part of our study focused a lot on uh, revenue that the timber sales are bringing in, just comparing state forest timber sales with all the other timber sales in the state. We looked at reports about the dollar values that these timber sales generate, and we found that state forest timber sales are generally bringing in a price that is comparable with low-quality timber sales, but they're not low-quality. So that we're kind of underselling ourselves. We're not getting top dollar for our timber, for sure. And we're not exactly sure of the reasons for that. In some cases, the study, like we were trying to answer certain questions, but in some cases we raised more questions than we answered. What is the cost to the highways? And particularly, the back roads must have some bridges with, say, five-ton weight limits. And these are these trucks going over those bridges, or can they avoid them? Since we are kind of on the back roads and in rural areas, a lot of times they there is no choice. Like, they have to take that road. Damage to county roads is, is a big issue and another sort of untracked cost. Counties do get a percentage of the revenue from the timber sales, but it's nowhere near enough to cover road costs, road building, road repair costs. And in fact, most of the money that goes to the counties is earmarked for fire departments. Well, as you mentioned, costs associated with county roads are really not accounted for at all in the current expense tracking procedures and we don't have a real good handle on that. We have some site-specific examples that will be in the final report. We also spend a lot of time looking at how much revenue, how much value do we generate from having our forests standing, from not harvesting our timber. So standing forests provide a lot of ecosystem services, and economists have developed some ways to put dollar figures on those ecological services like cleaning the air and cleaning the water, regulating the climate, preventing erosion, that sort of thing, as well as services like for foraging, for mushroom hunting, for example, or deer hunting, also services related to recreation and aesthetic enjoyment. So they can put a dollar figure on all of those things. It really adds up. So we came up with a range between about $1 billion and $2 billion in ecosystem services. And these are not representing cash transactions, but they do represent values that our society places on, on forests. We also looked into the potential for generating carbon credit revenue from our state forests. They do sequester a lot of carbon. And currently the plan is to harvest all of our state forests on a 20-year rotation through selective harvesting. That is a great deal of disturbance to a forest. And if we don't do that, if we set aside some areas that would not be harvested, then they would qualify for carbon credit. Looking into that, and currently Indiana it doesn't really have a mechanism for cashing in on carbon credits, but there are many cities in Indiana that have committed to net neutrality to try to reduce their carbon footprint, and so those cities may be looking to purchase carbon credits in the near future, and it would be great if they could purchase them from our Indiana State Forest. 
And then we also spend a lot of time looking at the potential for generating revenue through recreational activities in our state forests. And that would be mostly what we call dispersed recreation, meaning there doesn't have to be much developed infrastructure. This type of recreation can take place in a wilderness, possibly taking advantage of trails, not developed campsites or anything like that. There is a great deal of interest in that. The Division of Tourism, the state level, has recognized that's truly part of our market niche, that many visitors who come to Indiana like to engage in outdoor recreation. So I think there's a great deal of opportunity there. And if we charged people to uh, recreate in our wilderness areas, just a really small fee, it could add up to revenue stream that would equal or surpass what we now get from logging. Sounds very good. I'd like to thank you for the interview. Oh, thank you. Are you an environmental activist? an expert on a particular issue of environmental concern, a concerned citizen interested in learning more about local and national environmental issues. EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. Give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. Now we're going to tell you about some upcoming events that you might be interested in. And David, my goodness, that first one you're going to talk about involves a dog. Oh, yeah, this sounds like fun. Our friends at the uh, (laughs) Brown County State Park are inviting us to join the the second annual dog hike with our four-legged friends on Saturday, February 3rd from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the Brown County State Park. Uh, You should pick up your score sheet from the Nature Center anytime between 9 a.m. and noon. Then go out into the park to collect alphanumeric codes that will be placed along select trails and at select locations in the park. There will be a map with locations of these codes, but be on the lookout for the hidden codes. There will be a solitude hike on Saturday, February 3rd from noon to 2 p.m. at the Sycamore Land Trust, the Cedars Preserve, located on West Thrasher Road in Bloomington. Often, interpretive hikes involve so much discussion that you may never be fully aware of the sights and sounds around you. Join this hike to quietly explore the cedars with shared readings and inspirational quotes along the way. Please call Sycamore Land Trust to pre-register. Well, Juliana, they're having Indiana Civic Day, which will take place at the Indiana State Library on Saturday, February 10th from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. The Hoosier Environmental Council's Jesse Carbonda is among this year's speakers. Enjoy a day of information and action. Contact the Center for Inquiry Indiana for more information. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. 
found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's news stories were written by Linda Green and Norm Holy. Norm Holy produced our feature. My co-anchor, Juliana Daly, compiled our events calendar. Kirsten Payton engineers the show and edits our audio. Script editor is Andrew Brown. Producer is Rebecca Mueller. Executive producer is Wes Martin. For WFHB, I'm David Lyman. Thank you, David. And I'm Juliana Daly. Join us on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. before Democracy Now! and on Fridays at 5 p.m. before Kite Line for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. You can access headline news and feature audio from our show anytime on the WFHB website. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to The Eco Report. A volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB. In Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org.